0: As World War II was drawing towards a close, the first Nazi concentration camp liberated by Allied forces was in Ordorf, Germany. Allied soldiers arrived before the Nazis could destroy evidence of the camp, and the American soldiers walked into that camp to find unspeakable carnage. Uh, General Patton, fearless, Unflappable, called old blood and guts by his troops. Even General Patton could not contain his composure when he witnessed the evidence of what took place in that concentration camp. He, he was so sickened by what he saw that he vomited on sight. It was and is too horrific for words. But General Patton knew that that the the horrors of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust could not be ignored. The German people needed to understand what happened in their own neighborhoods. And so he brought in the mayor and citizens of the town of Ordorf and asked them to come and see the camp. He ordered every able body in town to dig graves. With the corpses at the concentration camp. They held a funeral for the deceased. After the funeral, the mayor of that town and his wife hung themselves and they left behind a simple note. We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. Sadly, I fear many Christians may, or many people that have some belief in God, may have a similar perspective about what God wants from us. We we say we don't know what He wants, but the truth is the painful, uncomfortable, unsettling, agonizing truth is that sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. Because if we know, then we might just need to change something. And that might hurt. The book of Micah tells us perhaps more clearly and simply than any other minor prophet what it is that God wants from us. The most famous verse in the book of Micah we read earlier begins this way God has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. We can say we don't know, but we know. Lord willing, with God's help, my prayer is that by the time we're done studying the book of Micah today, we'll know even more clearly. Than we may have known when we walked into these doors. So if you're not already there, grab your Bible and go to the book of Micah. It's not many years after Jonah preached to Nineveh, and Hosea and Amos were preaching against the northern kingdom, that a prophet named Micah is sent by God to preach against both the north and the south. And in Micah's prophecies, and that's what the book is, it's a series of, of prophecies that are given to both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. And these prophecies, we will see four things that God wants from everyone. Four things that God wants from every man and woman and boy and girl in this room today. Number one, God wants you to listen. God wants you to listen. Would you go to the very first book, the very first verse, rather, in the book of Micah? Micah chapter one and verse one. How does the book begin? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, that's the capital city of the south. From from the outset, from the very beginning of this prophet, like so many other books of scripture, we begin by being told that this is the word of the Lord. I think we, we talk about God's word, the word of God, sometimes so flippantly, we don't really realize how incredibly massive that is. Well, let me ask you this morning, do you believe that this is God's Word? Do you believe that this is God's Word? I'm seeing a lot of nods and hearing some amens. Praise God for that. But, but what we probably wouldn't hear in a church service, at least, is someone audibly saying, no, I don't. And perhaps you're thinking that. But you wouldn't say it. Or perhaps you're just, maybe you're Yes, you you know what you're supposed to say. You know what you're supposed to believe. You know what you're supposed to think, but you struggle. You struggle believing, really, really, God's Word. All of it, really. If if that happens to be you this morning, we're not going to out you. We're not going to ask you to say it out loud or stand up or raise your hand. But perhaps, if I may, perhaps give you a few reasons to believe that it's true that it really is the Word of God that maybe you haven't yet considered from the book of Micah. Uh, one reason being that the, the writers of Scripture clearly claim to be writing God's Word. So when Micah is writing this prophecy, he begins by telling you that it's the Word of the Lord. He thinks it's God's Word. Now he certainly knows that he's, he's speaking with his own lips and writing with his own pen, but he knows that God is speaking through him. Uh, this is what... Peter, the apostle, wrote about in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the the people of ancient days weren't naive. It's not as if they thought that just because these books were old that they were the Bible, They knew that God was speaking through them and that's what Peter is saying not only about his writings but about all of the scriptures. God is speaking through these authors. Another reason perhaps to believe if you're here doubting this morning. The writers of scripture often back up their claims with true prophecies. They'll prophesy something's going to happen and then it turns out that it does. We see this twice and actually more than twice but two really clear places in the book of Micah. Um, Micah prophesies in chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 that uh, the, the Assyrians would come and they would conquer the northern kingdom. That will happen in 722 BC about 20 years after Micah's ministry begins. In in Micah chapter 4, verse 10, he he prophesies that the, the Babylonians will come against the south. And that will happen in 586 B.C., long after Micah is dead and buried. The Bible is filled with prophecies that are fulfilled in real history. Perhaps another reason to believe that it's true is because for thousands of years, people have trusted that these books are Scripture. I know, as Christians, we might feel increasingly marginalized here in the United States of America, but we are among millions across the globe who believe that this is the Word of God. We're, we're not the minority in church, in history. There are, uh, there's a massive remnant of those that believe In heaven, there will be people from every tribe and tongue bowing down before the risen Lamb that believe this is true. Even in the book of Micah, 200 years after Micah prophesied, this prophecy we're studying this morning, another prophet named Jeremiah actually quotes from Micah, word for word, from Micah as truth. You can see it if you look up in Jeremiah or chapter... I think it's on the screen here. Jeremiah 26, verse 18, and Micah 3, verse 12. Word for word, quotation of the book of Micah. If you're still struggling to believe that the Bible is God's word, I would just challenge you to to read the Bible. I could give you lots of reasons why you might want to consider its truthfulness, but there is no better way to be convinced of its truth than by reading it and immersing yourself in it. If you're in this room and you don't read the Bible, you're not often in Scripture, perhaps one place to start, you know, often you read a book and you start at the very beginning, that can be helpful but a great place to start that I often recommend for people that aren't very often in the Bible is the book, the Gospel of Mark. Take your Bible and and go to the Gospel of Mark and just read, begin with reading the story of who Jesus is and learn about Him, the, the one that is the fulfillment of all these prophecies as we'll see. In addition, if you're in this room and you say, you know, I'm struggling to believe that the Bible is really true. It's really God's word. Uh, we've got a book here um, by Greg Gilbert called Why Trust the Bible. If you talk to me after the service? I'll give it to you. We've got several copies. If you want to head to the white flag after the service, there's some folks there that'll have this book for you for free. If you read it, it's for you if you'd like it. We want to help you to believe that this is true. Most of us in this room have already said or nodded, yes, we believe. We believe it's true. But let me just remind you, it's not enough to, to say that you believe it's true. God wants you to, to listen, to hear His Word. So, so think about the book of Micah like an ocean with three waves. And each wave, the peak of those waves, we hear the word hear or Listen see it first in Micah chapter 1 verse 2 where the prophet says hear you peoples all of you pay attention O earth and all that is in it that's the first wave beginning in chapter 1 verse 2 the second wave begins in chapter 3 verse 1 Micah chapter 3 verse 1 hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel and the third and final wave begins in Micah chapter 6 verse 1 hear what the Lord says. Now let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, why does God repeatedly tell his people to hear or to listen? Could it be because we struggle actually listening? Now, parents, you understand this, right? You're talking to your children and and, listen, listen, listen. Are you listening to me? Listen! Right? Of course, that never happens in my home because I keep an even temper and never ever raise my voice at my children. Just kidding. My kids will talk to me afterwards if I don't correct that. We say, listen. Listen up. Why? Because it's often hard not, or it's hard to hear. It's hard to listen. We find ourselves often not listening, hearing, intaking God's Word. And so three times in the book of Micah, we are told, listen. Listen. Here's my question for you, brother, sister, friend. Are you hearing the word of God? Are you regularly intaking God's word? This could be sitting down every day and opening your Bible and reading it. If if you use a Bible app, it could be opening your Bible app and reading it. It could be for some people that it's easier for you to listen. And so while you're getting chores done around the house or doing other things, or maybe even sitting still, you might use that Bible app and listen to Scripture. But in taking God's Word, is there a regular pattern in your life where you are hearing God's Word? If you could say honestly, the answer is no. I would challenge you to listen, to hear him. Listen, it's it's a sad state in the Christian church when, for many people, the most time they hear in God's word every week is when they gather. Now, praise God, we're in God's word every week when we gather, and we're in God's word a lot. But we're together for an hour and a half once every Sunday morning. What about the rest of the week? Is there not time to hear God speak to you in his word? So are you regularly hearing it? Are you regularly hearing it? I would add as well that God does speak to his people through his preachers that faithfully proclaim God's word. So when we gather we're not merely just hearing a preacher preach a sermon. We're hearing God speak to us through the preacher. Through the preacher who faithfully proclaims what has already been said, God is speaking. And I say it with a lot of fear and trepidation. God speaks through faithful Christian preaching. We see this in one place, First. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. God speaks through his word, faithfully preached. And yet we must be careful because there's a temptation, same temptation that was there in the days of Micah to find preachers who tell us what we like to hear. So look at Micah chapter 2, verse 11. Micah chapter 2, verse 11. Micah says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Here's a preacher, a windbag, who just gets in the pulpit and tells people about wine and beer people love that kind of preacher. Wow, he's a preacher. The preacher's about pleasure and nice things. That's the kind of preacher we want. Or if you look at Micah chapter 3 in verse 11, he says, he's talking about the rulers in, in Israel. He says, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in our midst No disaster shall come upon us. These are preachers that tell you everything is fine. The Apostle Paul warns us that as we get closer and closer to the end, the desire for this type of preaching will increase. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he writes, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So, so think about, you know, like a kid collecting Pokemon cards or baseball cards. You know, you've got all your favorite cards, and you're, you're collecting preachers. Here's the preacher I like to go to when I want to know about Hell. Because this one's really soft on hell. Here's the preacher I like to go to when I want to study what the Bible says about sin. Because this preacher doesn't really talk about it. They're accumulating, collecting preachers that suit their own passions. Let me ask you, brother, sister, friend. What kind of church do you want Pocosin Baptist Church to be? Do you want to be a church? Preach the word. Praise God, sister. A church where we hear what makes us feel good, or a church where we hear the truth. Just say to you, Micah is an example of the type of preachers that we should want. Look at Micah chapter three and verse eight. Micah chapter three, verse eight. Look at what he says about himself. But as for me, unlike these other priests and prophets, as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. You see, why do we talk so much about sin? Because until you know you're sick, you will never seek a physician. So what does God want from you? He wants you to listen to his word. If you faithfully do that, dear brother, sister, friend, If you faithfully listen to the pages of Scripture, if you hear not just the the message of Micah, but the message of the entire Bible, then it will lead you eventually to, number two, lament. Lament is is to grieve, it's to mourn, it's to weep, it's to wail, it's to be broken about something. And that's what we see in the book of Micah, a lamentation. Again, think about this, this wave image for the, the understanding of the book of Micah. Uh, the, the peak of the wave is that, that thrice repeated phrase here, here, here. But, but it's not the peak of the wave that gets you, is it? It's the bulk of it. It's the mass of the wave that gets you. And the mass of the wave and the, and the three waves in the book of Micah is this promise, this warning of wrath to come. So Three times in these three sections in the prophecy of Micah, we see warnings that God will punish those that are in their sin. The first wave is chapter 1, verse 2 to 2, verse 11. The second wave is 3, 1 to three twelve, And the third wave is chapter 6, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 13. You study the book of Micah, you'll see that in each of those sections there is warning after warning after warning that the wrath of God is coming. Let me just give you a, read you a representative example of that in Micah chapter two, Micah chapter two, verse three. Therefore, thus says the Lord: Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. This family, by the way, is the family of the people of Israel, north and south. This family, this family that began with Abraham, he's devising disaster, he says, from which you cannot remove your necks. You cannot escape, he says. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Perhaps you're wondering, why is God so angry? We've, we've tackled this almost week after week as we've worked through the minor prophets together. Every prophet has their own angle on this, their own perspective, but they're, they're all, the, the wrath of God is always rooted in the same thing. It's rooted in our sinfulness. And in the, in the prophecy of Micah, there's, there's two main sins, two main complaints that God has against his people idolatry and injustice. Idolatry is is not loving God as he deserves. Injustice is not loving your neighbor as your neighbor deserves. So he accuses them of idolatry in chapter 1 and chapter 5. He talks about high places, these places in Israel where they would go to worship God apart from how he required and commanded them to worship him. He talks about graven images, about sorcery fortune tellers, and God says all of that is going to be destroyed. He is a jealous God, and He is a God that will not tolerate idolatry in the hearts of His people. Perhaps you're listening and you're thinking, well that's good because I don't have any graven images. I don't worship any statues. If you remember from not long ago, um, a few weeks ago, we asked the question in our New City Catechism reading, what is idolatry? Here's the answer. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, do you ever hope in anything created for your happiness? you ever trusted in anything created for your happiness? The better answer might be, how many times have you done that this morning? <laughs> have you ever trusted in anything but the Creator for your significance? How often do we think, if I only get a few more followers, or a promotion, or more recognition from my... Wife or my husband, if I only get that, then I will feel more significant. That is a form of idolatry or security. What do we trust in for security? Vaccines, police, military. All these things are gifts from God, but they are not the source of our trust. And yet, our idolatrous hearts are so easily corrupted by lesser things. Let me ask you a question, dear brother, sister, friend. If God punished Israel for idolatry, why should he not punish you? Is the second great evil that Micah preaches against is injustice. So in chapter 2, he, he talks about how they're stealing from one another. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, they're not only stealing, but they're stealing from women and children. Let me just say something about injustice. Injustice, in whatever form it's found, always, always hurts the most vulnerable. Always. That was happening in the nation of Israel. It happens in our world today. I would, I would suggest to you, we've already talked about this as a church this year, the greatest injustice in our world today is that injustice that snuffs out the life of the unborn. So how can you be more vulnerable than that? Chapter six, Micah condemns the people for tricking each other with unjust scales in the marketplace. So again, let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, If God punished Israel for injustice, why would he not punish you? Why should he not punish you? I hope you know the answer to that question. If you don't, I hope to show you. Now, these two sins, idolatry and injustice, are echoed by the greatest teacher of all time, Jesus Christ himself. You remember, a teacher comes up to him and he asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, don't commit idolatry. And what's the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't commit injustice. Dear brother, sister, friend, are you ever guilty? Ever guilty of breaking those two greatest commandments. If you're honest with yourself, the only answer you can give is yes. So we've got a problem. God is holy, we've, we've already meditated on that as a church today through our prayers. God is holy, we are not. God threatens wrath for all who sin, and that is all of us. So what do we do? Most of you know that our family recently adopted uh, a little boy named Ezekiel from Colombia. And um, he's a, a native Spanish speaker or Spanish understander. We're working on some language things with him. And so as we've worked with him, we've had to teach him some sign language things and just try to communicate with him a little bit. And one of the things we've taught him was all done, all done. And so this is a really crucial one for a little kid, especially when your bigger brother and sisters are picking on you. You go, all done, right? All done. And, and he's learned that one. He can even say it a little bit. And recently, Holly took him to the doctor. And as soon as the doctor walks into the room, he just goes, all done, all done, all done. I don't, I don't want any more of this. All done, right? Isn't that what we do, right? What's the quickest way to get out of this, Right? wrath, these waves of wrath are coming at you friend how do I escape? well God's people Micah's audience have to be thinking the same thing and so Micah records for them what perhaps some of them are thinking Micah chapter 6, please go there in your Bibles, Micah chapter 6 beginning in verse 6 it's a passage we read earlier but it's so crucial to understanding this book and what God wants from you Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? Okay, here's the problem. I'm a sinner, God's holy, wrath is coming. How should I approach him? With what should I bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with him before or shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I want you to understand, those are all rhetorical questions, and the answer to all those questions is no. You can bring God the best sacrifice there is. It's not enough. You can bring him thousands, not, not a few hundred, thousands of rams and slaughter them all. And God says, It's not enough. 10,000 rivers of oil. God says, No. You could bring your own firstborn son. And God says, It's not enough. This is crucial. Understanding the message of Micah. What Micah's teaching us here is not only are we sinful, we are, as theologians sometimes say, totally depraved. We, we have no ability to please God, totally unable. To please God. there, Micah is deliberately using these drastic metaphors to point to you the reality that there is nothing you can bring to please God. Nothing. God is not a vending machine that if you put in the right coins, he will be pleased and dispense to you grace. There's nothing you can offer him to earn admission into his presence nothing this is not just the message of Micah this is repeated throughout scripture Isaiah 64 verse 6 says our righteous deeds your best works your Sunday best are like a polluted garment in the presence of God the best you have to offer is polluted trash and the presence of a holy God Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Romans 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh, listen, cannot please God. You are totally unable to bring anything to God that would please him and satisfy his wrath against your sins. If you really let that sink in, dear friend, that ought to be incredibly troubling. And it is. Micah himself is he's understanding the weight of this. Listen to what he says in Micah chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. There's nothing she can do to cure herself. It's come to Judah, it has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. What does God want from you, dear friend? He wants you to lament because of your sin he is holy and you are not wrath is coming if you faithfully do that brother sister friend if you really wrestle with the depths of your sinfulness and total inability to please God you will only have one place to look number three look what does God want from you he wants you to listen he wants you to lament he wants you to look So imagine you're at the beach again. That's kind of our big metaphor for the book of Micah. And this wave comes in. There's three waves in the book of Micah, three waves of wrath. And the wave comes to the shore. And then what happens? It it washes away and you get a glimpse of the wet sand. Maybe you even see some shells or some sea glass or something like that on the sand. Every time there's a wave of wrath in the book of Micah, the water recedes and there's a glimpse of grace. Three times, three sections in the book of Micah where we see this this glimpse of grace amidst these waves of wrath. And in every single glimpse, we get a picture, not just of a gracious God, but of a person, of a shepherd, of a king. I want you to notice these glimpses of grace. The first one begins in Micah chapter 2, verse 12. God says, I will surely... So the the wrath comes in, wave of wrath is threatened, water recedes, grace. Chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I'm going to gather my people again, he says. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. It's going to be so many people that it's noisy like a big crowd, big amphitorium filled with people. And then verse 13 tells us that this shepherd is also a king. A shepherd king will gather God's people. Second glimpse of grace is found in Micah chapters 4 and 5. Micah 4, if you read it, there's beautiful, beautiful images of a restored kingdom for God's people. We're not going to read the whole thing, but look with me in Micah chapter 4, verse 6. Micah 4, verse 6. And that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. It's interesting, isn't it, that their wound was incurable. And here in verse 6, the the lame are now walking to their shepherd. Verse 8, and you, O tower of the flock. Shepherd imagery again. Hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. A shepherd king is coming to establish a new kingdom for the people of God. And then that third glimpse of grace is found in chapter 7, verse 14 through the end of the book. I look at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Bashan and Gilead were among the first territories gained by God's people when they entered the promised land, and they were among the first territories lost when the kingdom fell. And God says, you're going to go there again. You're going to be forgiven. Now, here's the question that you ought to be asking. How? If our sin, point number two, is really, really that bad, if we're truly, totally unable to please God on our own, how can a God, a holy God, that we already talked about this morning, how can a holy God gather his people establish a kingdom and forgive them of their sins how can he do that if you were with us last week you heard me share the story of a pot filled with spilled meatballs on the floor in my living room and the the main question I've been asked after sharing that story is what did you all eat for dinner and just about everybody came to me asking me uh, where did you order out The assumption is, obviously, you have to replace that. You can't continue with meatballs on the floor any longer. So where did you order out? And the truth was, we didn't order out. Uh, We did what any parents of five children would do. You pick up the meatballs, put them in the pot, pour some more sauce on top, and you eat them. And I know most of you are judging me right now. Because what we're doing is we're compromising the integrity of the food so that we can just work with what we've got. I think many people think that God does one of these two things with his people. Either he's going to replace them. You know, the, the meatballs are ruined. We got to order something else. Let's get a new people. Ah, the church, New Testament. There we go. New people. Replace these people. We've got a new people. Or he compromises his integrity by working with what he's God and kind of covering over all the sins and mess of his people, compromising his holiness. Can I tell you something? God does neither. And the way we see that is by looking at who this shepherd king is. So go to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Now, if you're a Jew hearing Micah preach in those days, and you hear a shepherd and a king is coming, you are immediately going to be thinking about one person, the most famous shepherd king in all of Old Testament history. Who is it? David. David is coming back. This is amazing. We love David. Despite his faults. We love David. And Micah appears to be hinting that perhaps that might be what's going to happen. Look at Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, shall, for, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And you have to imagine the people of God hearing this and saying, it's David, Bethlehem, we know it. David is coming back. He's Bethlehem's most famous son. And then Micah says something staggering. Keep reading. Who's coming forth, is from old, from ancient days. Not David. Not David. Whoever Micah is talking about that's coming as the shepherd king for his people is someone that existed long before David. Who is this shepherd king? Verse three, therefore he shall give them up God's going to give up his people. He's going to let them go into exile until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. So this ancient of days is going to be born? That's interesting. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Who's the shepherd king? Who can it be but Christ? That's exactly what the wise men believed when they bowed before him and said, this is the Messiah born in Bethlehem. He is the one who is coming forth is from of old, the ancient of days. Truly born, truly human, a virgin, a Mary, and he shall be great. Now here's the question for every single person in this room. Have you looked to Jesus for salvation? Think again about that question that Micah asked in chapter six shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The answer to that question is no. But God turns that question on on its head and he says, no, you can't do that. But I will give my only begotten son for your transgressions. I will give my beloved son for the sins of your soul. Brother, sister, friend, this is incredible news. That God would send his son to be the shepherd king born in the city of David, to be a new and better Adam, a new and better David, a new and better Moses, our great high priest, our king of kings, our Lord of lords, the son of man, the son of God. This is Jesus. And if you look to him, and nothing else no one else you will be saved let me tell you dear friend you cannot look to your works don't look to your church attendance don't look to your giving don't look to your membership don't look to the fact that you're here today look only to christ that's all we have he's our only hope only in him what does god want from you he wants you to look to Christ and be saved. Not to work for your salvation, but to trust in the work of Christ. Now, if you faithfully do that, brother, sister, then you will never look the same. That's what we see the final thing that God wants from us and the book of Micah and the story of the Bible. He wants us to live. He wants us to live a life of obedience and faithfulness and love. So, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses, perhaps you remember the story, he asked to see God's glory. And God tells Moses he's going to pass by and and let him catch a glimpse of his glory. But the the full view of God's majesty would kill Moses. So Moses sees a glimpse. He falls down. He worships God. And then he descends from the mountain. Do you remember what Moses looked like when he descended from the mountain? He was glowing. Here's here's how the KJV puts it. I love this. Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone. In in other words, he was absolutely transformed and he didn't even realize what was happening. Uh, We've already prayed this morning that, that when we look upon the holiness of God, it's a look that changes us. It's a look that makes you look and live differently. So too when you look upon Christ. And so go again to Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This verse is not a recipe for earning God's favor or earning his love. The verses preceding Micah 6, 8 make it clear that that is impossible on human terms. What Micah 6, 8 is telling us is what does it it look like when you truly have looked upon Christ? How do you look differently? How should the Christian look? How should the Christian live? He should be a person that does justice. Dear brother, sister, friend, the Christian should care about justice infinitely more than anybody else in the culture. How we, we need to make sure we rightly define what justice is. But Christians care deeply about justice. And, and notice Micah says not just knowing justice, but doing justice. We treat other people fairly. We don't discriminate against one another over things like uh, sex or or skin or size. Love one another. We treat each other with respect as image bearers of God. Only the Christian can do this truly because only the Christian knows why fellow human beings deserve justice and that's because we're made in the image of a holy God. If you look on Christ, you, your, your life will look different. You will be a person concerned about treating other people as you would want to be treated. Do justice, love, kindness, kindness, the word kindness means covenant love or, or mercy. It's not enough just to do justice. We also need to love mercy. Um, we could we could be people that are only concerned about justice, and we never reach our hands to give people mercy. Here's what this could look like. Let me just give you an example of what the distinction between these two things. My son Ezekiel, he could. He could have lived his entire life in an orphanage. He could have. And that would not necessarily have been unjust. It might have been unjust if he was refused a family because of the color of his skin, or he was poorly treated because of his cleft palate or some disability. That would be unjust. Justice doesn't require him to be adopted. Mercy does. Mercy does. Mercy steps out and says, I will see you in your need and I will reach out my arms to help you. To to do more than maybe what you might deserve, but to give you grace and mercy and kindness to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, as James says. That's loving mercy. Do you love mercy? Christian, is is your life marked by a desire, a passion to not only treat people fairly, but to treat people beyond fair? If you have two cloaks, to give them one of yours, they have none. To love people, to to meet their needs and their poverty. And finally, to walk carefully. It says, walk humbly with your God. That's the ESV, but that word humbly Literally means to be circumspect, to walk with care. This is a life of obedience to God and his word. Christian, if you've looked upon Jesus, your life will look differently. And part of that is a life of obedience, life of holiness. Not perfectly, but truly seeking to follow Christ. So what does God want from you? He wants you to listen to his word. Lament over your sin and your inability. Look to Christ alone for salvation and live a life of love and obedience. The mayor and his wife in Ordorf said that they didn't know, but they really did. Perhaps there's some in this room that are in the opposite state. You say you do know, but you really don't. The best thing I can do this morning is leave you with with one final look at the glorious God revealed in the book of Micah and plead with you to trust him while there's time. So the final words of Micah, Micah chapter seven, beginning in verse 18, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. That's every Christian in this room every Christian in the world. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who is a God like this? Father, we thank you that you